Any kids in here do not like dinosaurs? Do not like dinosaurs? Raise your hand. Okay, that's what I thought. Right. I remember going to a museum, probably a small museum, uh, but I remember the shock that I had when I, I, you read the placard. I love dinosaurs. I'd probably ask any big kids that don't like dinosaurs. Uh, same answer. And I, I remember the shock that I, I got when I read the fine print. As kids, you don't read fine print. But I remember seeing what it said down below. And it said the, the, the actual dinosaur finds, like the actual part of that, that that's part of the, is this little preserved, it's a brown bone or whatever, right? And you're looking and you're hunting all over for the brown bone because it looks like a dinosaur. I see all these bones. And, and what you find out is that you're looking at plaster of Paris, right? And, and, and in reality, what they actually found was a knuckle, you know, or something on, on, a, on the left, you know, whatever toe. And, and that, that's, they, they did this whole thing from this little, this little bone. Like, and that's disappointing. I mean, they didn't find this just like this, you know, standing out in the middle of somewhere. I was like, wow, you know, your kid, you know, he's like, my, my illusion uh, is it's it's blown to smithereens, right? Things have deceiving appearances. So you go home and you're like, I'm going to console myself and I'm going to watch a real life sports story. Ever do that? Real life sports stories. My my kids hate them. I, I love sports stories that, and I love real life ones. You know, they really happen. Like Rudy. And then you find out it didn't really happen. I mean, there's, yeah, there was a short kid that played football. That's about it. That's, that's, that's a part of the story that's real. Right? That's it. And, 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 and I mean, there's like a couple of things that are true. And this guy's made a, 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 a living off of, of you know, a, a story that's not really true. Or you know, you get all these movies, sports movies that are, you know, remember the Titans and nothing really happened. It's completely out of place, and there's no real event. Like you start researching, you know, oh, so disappointing. I mean, there's some that are okay. Sometimes the you know the true story isn't exciting enough, right? We can't just say some people played football and they won, right? We we have to spice it up. There's one. Um, what is it? Uh, I'm trying to uh, remember the one there. It's a, a Glory Road. Glory Road was so bad that uh, Texas A&M sued Disney. Right? That's how bad it was, like for, for falsely portraying a, an event that never happened. Right? So you just, we've got to make it dramatic. So, so we add something in it. There's one that is understandable. Um, one of my favorites. Ever, anybody ever watch We Are Marshall? Right? I, I like that, that's actually one of the ones that is, is a little bit more true to life. Not, not completely. But there's an element of this that, that's also not true. But there's a reason for it. It's, um, when, they, when they started, you got all these tragic stories, right? It's about a plane crash and, and a sports team. Basically, the most of it dies. That's sad. And, and so as they're interviewing all these people, they said, well, we can't tell everybody's story. And everybody's story is equally valid, right? And, and is important. And so what they do is they create a composite character. Right. They try to take all of the stories and, and, and stitch together a, a few people into the story that never really existed. Right. 
It's disappointing. Like, oh, that, that person never existed. No, they, they couldn't because then somebody else would be left out, you know, and, and in a story like that, you don't want to do this. So, so it's understandable. And that's fine in a sports event. But the problem is we don't want to make composite characters in the Bible, do we? No. <laughs> and unfortunately, we've had some composite characters. Today, we're, we're talking about some leftovers. So, so uh, that's our dinner today. And we're going to go back to a, a, a place where we started in Luke chapter 36, or excuse me, 7, verse 36. I guess I'm, I need better glasses here. Luke 7, 36. We're going to read a couple of passages that are fairly similar. And you're going to wonder why I'm reading them all. There's some different details. <clears throat> Luke 7, we're, gonna just, we're not going to read the whole text. We already went through that sermon. <clears throat> but I just want to read a, a few of the verses in this. So we're going to uh, skip around in it a little bit. Verse 36, he begins, he says, uh, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them, and he said, he went down to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Sound familiar, right? Uh, so we already read this. This is the sermon that we started off with in the series. Uh, she knew that Jesus was at the table in the Pharisee's house, and she brought an alabaster flask from, of fragrant oil. And uh, she stood at his feet and behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. And we're going to skip down uh, to verse 44. Uh, I said, and he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you not see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but the woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. Uh, you did this, uh, you did not anoint my head with oil, this, uh, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. So I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven her, for she has loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Well, I want to, um, since that sounds so familiar, I want to turn to two other passages that we're going to to read, and you're going to wonder, why in the world does he keep reading the same thing? And I, 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 I have a plan. So Mark chapter 14. <clears throat> Mark chapter 14, and verse 3 through 9. Being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil, of spike nerd. She broke the flask and poured it on his head. There were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you troubling her? She's done a good work for me. You've the poor, you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And so assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Uh, Matthew is almost the exact same passage, so we're not going to read that. But we are going to turn to John chapter 12. And this is, uh, again, a slightly different. It's got some different details in it. John chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, uh, had been dead, who he raised from the dead. Uh, they, made, they made him a supper. Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And Mary took a pound of very 
costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. And Jesus said to her, leave her alone. She's kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Over the years, in the beginning of, of the church age, right, the first couple of centuries, things got a little lazy. Some maybe, maybe it was lazy, maybe it wasn't. Maybe just people kind of had these stories told to them because uh, we've been talking in, in our adult class in the morning that they didn't, everybody didn't own a Bible, couldn't just go flip and say, hey, uh, let's cross. They didn't have verses and chapter numbers. So, so you kind of had to read the whole text. It was a little bit more difficult to get through. So, so, uh, so this tradition, however it developed, was it lazy or was it uh, some other cause? I don't know. But, but the church began to develop a composite character uh, out of these texts that we've read. And so uh, they identified everything as a single event. What we're going to see is that's actually not the case. Uh, so both of these events became the same. So a sinful woman became Mary, right? Uh, whereas she's not named Mary in the first uh, one that we began with. Um, uh, but she became Mary. And, and just for added measure, because, you know, it's too convenient not to. She became Mary Magdalene, uh, so, so Mary Magdalene then by extension became the sinful woman. Uh, and it, it was all one thing. And maybe you kind of, you, you know, we read remember a few years ago, we as a church ran through the whole Bible in, in a short period of time. And when you do that, you jam things together and it's like, you, it's a kind of a blur. <laughs> and maybe you kind of do that too. Uh, maybe, so maybe it was an accident. Maybe it's easy to understand how it happened. Uh, but the facts are these. When you look at these, there's two events. Uh, the one that we began with in Luke is a different event from the one in Matthew, Mark, and John. Those three are the same event as each other. And, and there are earmarks in each of them that help us to know that. But why did they get confused as one? For two reasons. In both, there's a man named Simon. And in both, stories or both events there's an alabaster bottle that's it that, those are the only two details in in these two separate events that are the same so for me to conclude based on those two events that that this has to be the same event i have to include i have to assume two things one i have to assume that simon wasn't really a popular name <laughs> read your bible it's a popular name and i also have to assume that that a lot of women didn't have alabaster bottles right of, of of perfume that that was not a popular thing to store like, like women didn't like pretty things i have to assume that 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 women wouldn't find similar things pretty to store their perfume in well that's ridiculous right this those aren't coincidences at all i mean th th those are not dramatic coincidences right those are easily explainable those are the only two things that are Similar. Everything is, I want to look at the things that are different. 
we're not going to go back and forth. I'm, I'm just going to go through some of these. Uh, and you can see that, that these are, and, and we're going to get to a point here. But I, I want to take this opportunity as we're going through these to, to illustrate something uh, and, and set at least the record straight. <clears throat> First of all, the sinful woman happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If you read the context, John the Baptist is still alive. If you read the, the verses preceding. However, we know that the second event cannot be the same event because it happens eight days before his death. It is impossible for these two to be the same event. Well, let's go. Let's go a little further. They happen in separate locations. One happens, if we read the context, Luke happens in Galilee, while Mary happens in Bethany. There are two separate Simons. One is listed as Simon the Pharisee, one as Simon the leper. Now, someone said, well, couldn't he be a Pharisee who had been a healed leper? That is possible. That is technically possible. However, it would seem that the apostles would address him as the same person. I would throw things into confusion to, to give separate uh, identifications for this guy. Um, we have two separate critics. In the first event, who's the critic? It's Simon, the man who's hosting things. In the second event, it is, well, the disciples. It's kind of interesting thing. It's, we, we find even more specifically that Judas kind of starts the criticism, and, and, and the rest of the disciples apparently jump on in. Like, yeah, Judas is right. Well, there's a story there, but we won't get into it. We have two completely separate criticisms. If you look at the first one, the criticism is, hey, he's letting a sinful woman touch him. And he, he must not be a prophet. And in the second one, the criticism is completely, Jesus is being wasteful. It's a, it's a completely separate event here. Jesus' response to the two women is different. The first one is forgiven because she's a sinner. But the second one, there's no mention of sin or forgiveness. He mentions memorializing her. And Jesus' lesson is completely different. Jesus always takes these events and teaches a lesson with them. Right? It's always an opportunity. Everything that happens is a teachable moment. Jesus never had a non-teachable moment. We look for, ah, where's the teachable moment? Jesus is like, every moment is. The first lesson is a lesson on forgiveness because that was the situation, a sinful woman. But the second was Mary, and it was about his death, and it was about charity. It was a completely different lesson. So it's a completely different group of people. There's actually three women. Just for, just for saying sake, I want to go back to Luke. Luke 7 is the first event, but I don't want to read Luke 7. I want to re read the very next thing that happens in Luke chapter 8. Very, very next mention. We, we get through the, the, the sinful woman being forgiven in, in Simon's house, and we come to Luke 8. 
They're still in Galilee, and he came to pass, verse 1, afterward that he went through every city and village preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with them, and the certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom came seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chutza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, many others who provided for him from their substance. So this is interesting. Mary is from Magdala, so she cannot be from Bethany. Uh, Magdal is uh, uh, still a city, uh, and it's uh, in Galilee, uh, on the coast in the northwest of, of the Sea of Galilee. So she's not Mary of Bethany, so we can first eliminate that. Secondly, the last story we read was that this woman was, uh, in this previous story, was forgiven of sin. Mary Magdalene is not listed. And, and mentioning her right after this, this would be a convenient place to mention that she was the woman that had been forgiven in the previous story that I just told. Right? Here's Luke. I just told the story. Here's this woman. But he doesn't introduce Mary Magdalene as a, the woman who just been, you know, three sentences ago was forgiven. She is a woman who has been healed of demons. So she is not the same woman. So we have three women. And the lesson that I have to teach is nothing to do with this, but it's just a great opportunity to understand that we do not want to make composite characters. Mary Magdalene, for 2,000 years, maybe a little bit less, has been thought of as this horrible, sinful woman because of a composite character. Right? She's had... She's had a stigma attached to her that, that she never had, that was not in reality. When we, when we make composite characters, we implicate people of things. Now, I think it's, it's good to set the record straight for her behalf. This is a, our, our main event our, that we want to look at, this dinner in the last one's with Mary of Bethany in their house, with Simon, the leper, is a lesson about decision-making, among other things. Every group has an ideology. I want to talk first about ideology. Every group has an ideology. Events have ideologies, right? There's a group there, right? If you go to a country concert, you can pretty much guess the viewpoints of the people. I'm not saying 100%, but these are generalizations. Generalizations exist because they are generally true. Products. You know, products have an ideology. Go buy coffee. You walk into a coffee shop and you are aware of an ideology. As I didn't know that, that coffee could be political, but it is. Right? It, it has groups surround themselves and, and meet together on a thing, and they share an ideology. All groups have, and it doesn't have to be political. Every group has an ideology. The apostles have an ideology. Doctrine is a type of ideology. If you think of it this way, an ideology is simply 
in business, every business has an ideology. It's called your mission statement, right? This is our idea. And you can have two completely identical products, but different companies, and they have different ideologies. They might offer similar things, but, but they have different ideologies, different mission statements that they want to do with their product that is exactly the same, right? So like any group, the church has ideology. Some of it's doctrine. It's not always doctrine. There are many elements of our faith that are necessary. And, and so ideology, a lot of times, is the source of our decision-making. And we interpret, sometimes, unfortunately, we interpret the prioritization of this ideology over this ideology as exclusive. What I mean by that is that if this is more important, then that means this is not important. You understand what I'm saying? And, and, and so if someone says, if someone seems to say, Andrew, I think this is more important right now than that, I seem feel hurt because you just said that I wasn't important and, and what I want is not important. No, no, no. I just said, Andrew, you, right now, this moment, that is not as, as important, right? We talked about urgency and, and importance and, and prioritization. So understand when I say that our ideology is not doctrine, people go, whoa, wait a minute. Ideology and doctrine are not synonyms. Doctrine is a part of our ideology, but it's not the whole of it. And if we have a faith where only doctrine is important in, dis in determining course only, that is an incomplete faith. There's a lot of elements that are important. And Jesus challenges their ideology. There are a lot of things that, that serve a purpose in our faith, in our, in our religious experience. And he challenges one of their key ideologies. There are a lot of things. We talked about doctrine. That identifies reality for us. It identifies God. It identifies man, sin. There are uh, things like salvation. Doctrine is very important. It's not, it's, you can't exclude it. Um, outreach is an ideology. It's, it's an important thing. It's a part of our DNA, or it's supposed to be. I mean, doctrine and outreach are the last two pieces of advice Jesus talks about before he leaves the earth. I, I think that's important. And their, idea, their ideology at this point is benevolence. Is that important? Yes, it's vital. And Jesus challenges their ideology. He says, yes, but. And many people draw the conclusion incorrectly that Jesus was minimizing the importance of benevolence or somehow slighting the poor. Eh, you know, you got the poor always. That, that's not the tone of voice I can guarantee you that that came out with. <laughs> but he is simply elevating a different ideology, and we're going to get to which is his ideology. The other part of our 
decision-making process is methodology. How we do something, the motives, or not just the motives, but the, 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 the technology or the, the means by which we accomplish things is a part of our de decision-making. How are we going to do this? Many aspects of our faith are surrounding this. In our group, we have people a significant, and we have had. I mean, some have come and some have gone, but there's, we have a ton of, of people with professional backgrounds. Right? That, that's not true everywhere. If, if we were in the middle of Detroit, we'd probably have a pretty decidedly blue-collar feel, wouldn't we? And, and those are two completely different makeups, and neither one is right or wrong. We have a lot of more meetings. Right? It's hard. You're like, we're, we're, you need a meeting for this and a meeting for that, and it's like hard to find time for meetings because every group has a meeting. Why? Because we come from a church that is composed of people who are used to accomplishing things through meetings. That's just who we are. That's fine. That's not bad. Organization's not bad. I'm not against it. Blue-collar churches are, are like, okay, let's get it done. Right? You, you, it just, I've, I've been in both, and it's just like, okay, we, we need to do this. Okay, let's do it. And that's the meeting. <laughs> that's it. That's not wrong. And both of you, if you're a blue-collar person or whatever, because we can we cannot all be the same. I think yeah, mine, mine, mine is better. Meetings are better. Meetings are worse. Whatever. Yeah, if you're an organizational, you probably once you, you get going, things tend to work smoother, don't they? You've had meetings. You've organized it. But it takes you a year and a half to get off the ground. That's all, right? Just meetings. You got to have this meeting for this and that. Man. But once it goes, man, it's smooth. Blue collar, blue collar, get her done. Oh, guess what we forgot? But you're active from the get-go. Right? You're accomplishing something from the get-go. You might take two steps back. It might not always be cost-effective. God doesn't care. God made both people. It, it, it all works. We're all getting there. And in this, there's a thing called pragmatism. Pragmatism is a, is a, a new code phrase for this. It's called best practices. You heard that phrase? Best oh, the best practices. Okay, it's not a bad idea. Here's, let me explain best practices. We take everything that we've tried, and we go, that didn't work, and that didn't work, and that didn't work. Let's get rid of those. This worked better, this worked. Okay, which worked the best of these ones? Let's, let's do it this way. That's smarter. And it is. That's best practices. That's pragmatism. And, and, and it has a place. Efficiency. We want to be efficient as a church. And it has limitations. Pragmatism really isn't better, best practices. It's better practices. Because what pragmatism says is we're going to look at the ways that we've tried it and pick the better of those. There might be a 
even better one out there that is the best one, but we're not looking at that one. We're looking at the ones that we've tried, right? So it's not really the best, it's the better. But that's not even, Jesus doesn't even go there. But Jesus does challenge their pragmatism significantly. He drops a hammer on their pragmatism. Because Judas points out that the stuff that got put on Jesus' feet was worth a year's salary. They earned a denarii a day. That's a common laborer's. And if someone came in here and seemingly wasted $30,000 of something, we would go, ah. wouldn't we? And so did the disciples. And Jesus said, slow your roll. I don't care about your pragmatism. You will come up with $30,000 somewhere. The church will not miss $30,000 over the course of thousands of years. All right? We're going to get by without it. Jesus challenges their idea because here's the problem. Pragmatism always, almost always focuses on the short-term gain. Almost always. Efficiency almost, the, the bottom line is never 10 years down the road, this is what's going to happen. It's like at the end of the year, what are we looking at? What, 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 what's the cost efficiency you know, in the short term? What's our quarterly going to be or whatever? Right? That, that's how efficiency is typically looked at. And so Jesus is going to introduce something superior to pragmatism or a, a completely new ideology. And he doesn't call it this, but this is what it is. It's worship. Worship. That's what this woman did. And he said, you keep your efficiency over here. There's a time and a place for it. You keep your meetings over here. There's a time and a place for it. I'm here for worship. As a method, let's start where we left off here. In the short term, how far is $30,000 going to go? I, well, I can think of a lot of things to do with $30,000. And I can tell you, you can burn through it pretty fast, can't you? Mm-hmm. What is Jesus saying here? What about, what, what's going to happen because of this woman's worship? Wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done is going to be remembered. Your 30000 is going to be spent and done and gone. And this woman is still going to be producing an effect in other countries, countries that haven't been invented yet, they've created, and people haven't even gone there yet. There's going to be a country and people are going to be reading Bibles and they're going to be reading this story and they're going to be influenced by this woman, what this woman, that, that this Mary.
is going to be influencing people. I can do a lot more than your $30,000. God says, just give me worship and watch what I can do with it. Worship is not the result of ideology. I know we think that. Worship is an ideology. Worship is a mission statement. It is not the result of doctrine. Doctrine does not determine my worship. There are things on doctrine that connect to worship. There are things that God identifies throughout time as inappropriate. But doctrine does not determine worship. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, one of your acts of worship is uh, wiping Jesus' feet with your hair. Not in there. And Jesus accepts it. She didn't sing. She didn't do anything that I'm kind of used to coming into church and doing. It exists outside of a formula. It was just appreciation. Just appreciation for for Christ. He had raised her brother from the dead. I assume that went in heavy into her thoughts. Not a formal religious assembly, but still worship. A dinner. Your Worship of God, our worship of God, it's what governs our outlook on all other things. It should be. We think of it as as kind of the tag-along to other more important things. We, we, we think of it, okay, yeah, okay, and now we worship. Well, we got to really do those important things, and now we worship. Your worship of God will determine all other things. It will determine how much respect you have for doctrine. A lot of people just make it up as they go. Because why? Because they don't have a heart of worship. The heart of worship will determine the attentiveness to detail that I have. A heart of worship will say, what an incredible relationship I have with God. I want to bring that to somebody else. And it will determine my outreach. See, all those other important things are really underneath the ideology of worship. So as we conclude here, I always leave you with some things to apply. First of all, just to know something. To leave here knowing that Things done from a purity of heart, from sincere, genuine worship, as opposed to form worship, 
will outperform any strategy composed in any meeting. Every time. God's always shown the desire to use straight up pure worship over dollars every time. He'll resort to dollars when he doesn't get anything else, I guess. But he wants worship. So I want you to look for the opportunities to do more than the ordinary. Ordinary is fine. Nothing wrong with ordinary. But we can limit God through our pragmatism and through our focus on efficiency. Don't want to be inefficient intentionally just because, hey, God, use this. But to focus on finding something extraordinary in devotion. No, find, look for opportunities to worship dramatically. I didn't say drama. This is drama, not dramatic. Dramatic, intense. That, that stuff says, look at me. Dramatic forms of worship look at God and point to God. A full humbling of yourself. The last thing Mary wanted was people looking at her. That's, that's humiliating. That was dramatic. And God says, I can use that. I can use that. And I can influence people in hundreds of nations 2,000 years from now. That is worth $30,000. You can find something to feed somebody with, but worship dramatically.